This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Welcome to the interview. My guest today is Ryan Imgrant, who is a biostatistician for South Lake Regional Health Center in Newmarket. He is the Department Head of Science at York Catholic District School Board. Ryan provides analysis of the COVID-19 outbreak and is the author of some valuable risk assessment tools and frameworks used by several Ontario institutions. His work has been featured on CBC, the Toronto Star, CTV, and other media outlets. The show notes are packed with talking points ranging from the Ontario government's response, the statistical methods used to determine actions, impact of school reopenings, the effectiveness of closures, struggles with data collection, and when we might see live basketball again, and of course, a lot, lot more. Thank you for listening. All right, Ryan, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, Appreciate it. And thanks for having me. So let me start off with this general tension that seems to exist in pretty much every decision related to COVID, uh, whether it be opening schools or opening restaurants. It's this tension between keeping the economy going and maintaining the health of uh, our society. And this, this tension has resulted in oftentimes some unclear guidance on how we communicate to people. So for example, uh, I can't visit my grandparents, but it's okay to have a 50-person indoor dinner at a restaurant. Do you empathize with that with that statement, do you see where that's coming from? Oh, I absolutely do. Main reason that we are seeing this is because we have very, very unclear guidelines from our like, provincial government. We're like told that schools, they can have 30 students in some areas. We're told that like businesses, certain like, types of businesses can have certain numbers of people. If you have an indoor gathering, you can have a certain number of people, but an outdoor gathering would be a like, totally different number. And at the exact same time, we also have social bubbles, which are actually different from all of those things too. So I think once you hear like all that information, it's very, very easy to be thrown off and to wonder, well, how does this apply to this situation here? And I think that's what many people are asking right now. Are these guidelines that the province uh, provides? And, uh, you know, we get the high level picture of on, on why it's happening. And most people are exposed to daily case counts, uh, deaths. Uh, hospitalizations, uh, and maybe number of intensive care beds. Are there any other inputs that go into these calculations on how to how to provide guidance other than the stuff that you know the, the, we see on CTV news? So yeah, for sure. So I think one thing is called the effective reproductive number. And what the effective reproductive number is, is how many secondary infections are caused by each and every primary infection. In other words, if that value is one, that means that one primary infection leads to one secondary infection. If that value is two, that means that one primary infection leads to two secondary infections. So obviously, you want to make sure that you have this value in and around one, because you want to have one infection causing one other infection. That's kind of the goal that we're at right now, because we have seen in our value above one for about 55 days now. So the whole goal right now is just to bring that value back down to one and actually plateau the cases off. Once we're able to like plateau the cases off, 
Then you want those cases to drop, which means the RT value has to drop like under one. Now, that being said, where were we at the start of things? Well, the RT value back in March was around 2.8. So that meant one infection would lead to 2.8 infections. It doesn't sound like a lot, but very, very quickly, things can scaffold out of like control. And then you're forced to go into full lockdown when you shut down schools, when you shut down malls, when you shut down shopping centers, when you shut down pretty much everything aside the like bare necessities. That sounds like an incredibly complex number to calculate. Is there diverse opinions on what that number is? Or is it sort of a unified general idea that this is what the r naught is for Ontario? Or are there different variations where different bodies are providing different assessments of what that number is? Like, what's, what's the math or, or, or the reasoning behind that number? How do you calculate it? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's uh, the complicated software that actually calculates it for me. But the inputs which actually go into it are fairly simple. What we like take is we take the like daily case count, but we use the estimated symptom onset. In other words, it's not the like, daily value which we see because sometimes we're seeing cases that are three, four, five weeks old, which wouldn't have an effect on the like, transmissions that we're seeing right now. So with that being said, that's one value which we would definitely use. The other thing is something called the, the generation interval. And what that means is that one primary infection leads to a secondary infection in approximately four days. So that's the amount of time like in between one infection to the next. And it's not exactly four days. And that's where standard deviation comes into play. And that's of around three days. So like basically what this software does is it figures out for every single case, if it was like transmissible to somebody else in four days with a standard deviation of three days, are we able to link up these infections, one infection to another infection, that infection to another infection. When you're dealing with 400, 500 cases per day, there is a lot of transmission trees involved. And this thing basically generates a whole bunch of like transmission trees. And then you get the, the RT value, which is the effective reproductive value for that given time from all those inputs. And is this achieved entirely through contact tracing? Like cases would be uh, like positive PCR tests. But yeah, I mean, the optimal way to actually get the real like RT value would be through contact tracing. But that also means that, you know, every single person who is infected and you also know for sure where they got that actual case from. And as you can imagine, that's very, very difficult to figure out that information. And I think that's one of the issues that we're having in the, the province right now is that we're not able to figure out where these cases are actually coming from. We're attributing approximately 80% of all the cases that we see now in some really, really big urban centers to sporadic community transmission, which means we're not able to track those down. So that would be the best way to figure out the actual RT value. But because we don't know the source of cases, we're also not catching every single infective person that it's an estimate more than anything else. Ontario has recently switched to uh, appointment only COVID testing uh, because of the backlog that's, that exists right now. Do you see this change affecting the ability to analyze the spread of the virus? Because now you're effectively uh, reducing testing to people with symptoms, which might inflate your numbers. In this situation, are you do you sort of lament not having access to more of a random sample of the population, but only being able to play around with people who already have symptoms? It's very, very tricky. And I think, you know, that's one area where we've kind of dropped the ball. We should have expected this back in August when we were testing around 35,000 people per day. 
most of them were asymptomatic. And we were finding only about 100 cases, which meant about 0.3% of all cases were actually coming up like positive. What we should have expected is that when this second wave hit, we're going to have more symptomatic people. And if we have sort of set up society with this expectation that if you want asymptomatic testing, you can receive a, like asymptomatic testing, we've set them up with that false notion. And I think that's what's led to the situation that we've seen these past three weeks, four weeks, that we don't only have symptomatic people going for testing, we also have asymptomatic people going for testing too. Would it not make sense to just send out 100,000 random tests to everybody in Ontario and just see what the true infection rate is? Or is that kind of overly simplifying this thing? It's very, very tricky because one of the issues that we see is that with self-collection, you're not going to catch all the actual tests. In fact, um, there's been studies looking at the like, proper way to do a nasopharyngeal swab, which is the um, swab that you've seen where a um, stick is basically placed up the person's nose. You can imagine that if somebody was doing this to themselves, you're not going to get a very good sample. Now, there's salivary tests as well. And the issue with salivary tests is they're not as accurate as the actual like nose swab. So the issue becomes that you want to make sure that like people are actually tested properly. You want to make sure that you catch a lot of these cases, but you want a test that is fairly specific as well. And I think one of the issues with saliva tests is that they're not as effective as you would want those like tests to actually be. Going on this theme on like what what other people have done well, randomized testing is certainly one thing. You're right. I mean, uh, it, the countries that have done randomized testing, they don't actually just send out tests and expect you to fill out a form and return it back. They actually stop you in the middle of the street, shove something up your nose. What can we learn from two particular countries? One is Sweden, which had absolutely no restrictions on anything for the for the first part of the virus and only later on imposed some. And the other, South Korea, which also did not have any restrictions at all, but did some extremely effective tracking of individuals. Are there something we can learn from those two cases that can be applied to Ontario? Well, I think so. And I think, you know, one thing that we've seen in uh, Korea that has been very effective has been the contact tracing. Now, the issue that we may have with our country with what was done over there is that it was very invasive contact tracing. I think in our society, we value information privacy a lot more than they would in uh, like South Korea. And because of that, it would be a much, much tougher sell to have that done over here. Now, with that being said, you've got to kind of weigh things out. You've got that invasion of privacy. But with that invasion of like privacy, you're also keeping cases down, which means you can keep things open for a longer period of time. So you have to really balance those two things out. If you look at the like, Korea system, they really have like an automatic contact tracing system, which uses credit card data. It uses cell phone location. It uses C- like CCTV footage. That's something which I don't think here in Ontario, we would ever see those kind of privacy violations in order to extract the information that would be very, very helpful. Like Korea, one thing which you know has been super, super, super beneficial has been actually text messaging people that have been in close proximity to somebody else to get like tested. With that being said, that's somewhat similar to the the contact tracing app, which we have here, but there's not enough people like downloading that app. It hasn't been encouraged enough for it to be as useful as the app would actually be able to be. That, that seems like a no brainer. Like, w- w- have we dropped the ball there? I think we have. And all that we're really doing is asking people to. The other kind of flaw with everything too has been the the QR code system um, that some other countries have also utilized too, that when you go to a like restaurant, you check in with an actual QR code. You know, there's a few restaurants which have that on their own 
like volition, but it's not done like everywhere. And that's going to make contact tracing a little bit easier. But with that being said, with so many places being open now, we have restaurants, malls, gyms, schools, workplaces. It's very, very tricky to actually track down these places. And that's why I think with the Korea system of actually, you know, um, the tracking cell phone locations, CCTV footage, and like credit cards, it's effective. But then we have to ask ourselves, what do we value more? But at, at least the public should be given the choice if they want to opt into the system. Uh, but I, I don't think we have the political timelines to actually act on that right now. We don't. And I don't think we have the attitudes either. I know that in like, Korea, if you ask individuals um, about like, what's being done, um, I know the Koreans would say, well, that's our civic duty. And I don't think that would be the exact same response by a lot of Ontarians if you said to them, you're going to be tracked, your cell phone's going to be tracked, your credit card purchases are going to be tracked. We'd probably have a huge issue with that. Hmm. Uh, Let me ask you this question about gyms and uh, some of the indoor places that you mentioned. Do we have any data which shows that certain types of establishments are way more prone to transmitting or spreading this virus than say than say something else. Do, do, do we have anything at that level that says, you know, yeah, gyms should probably be closed because they spread data? Or is it because of lack of data? Are we seeing pretty much broad advice to a wide range of establishments because we, we can't actually specifically point out and say, well, you're doing great and you're not so good? And that's what the issue is, is I think some like restaurants and the gyms have been art, have been like unfairly targeted recently because we simply don't have the actual data that is able to link things back to a gym, a restaurant, to indoor um, the drinking places, indoor establishments, other things like that. We don't have that actual data. And that's very, very challenging when you say to people, look, we're going to shut down this location only because we think it's linked to cases. Now, there have been a few like bars in like university towns. There's been some like, you know, strip joints as well that have been linked to multiple cases. And I think that's about the only time when we've seen issues is when a location is linked to multiple issues. We don't really have set like data in terms of what is actually leading the most to infections, mainly because we have so many things open right now. It's very, very tough to say, like A is causing B, when we also have 50 or 60 other places, which an individual in the last two weeks has actually visited, we don't know where they got that infection from. Um, And that's what makes it very, very challenging, like at this time to say, let's shut down this place, let's shut down that place. With that being said, one thing that we like do know is that there are super spreader events, which is where one individual is leading to multiple cases. And we've seen those inside Leo karaoke bars. We've seen those inside um, bars, not as much inside um, like gyms, but we have seen those super spreader events happen in multiple locations. Yet it would be very, very tough to track that down to one specific Ontario location where we've seen that. And that's what kind of makes things challenging is that you want the data in order to be able to shut down the, the troublesome business, but we don't actually have that data. And that, I think, is where that whole COVID app comes into play. Don't forget the White House. The White House is also a super spreader event. It was a huge super spreader event. That's exactly it. And yet it was funny as well, because I think that was an outdoor event as well. But if you saw the individuals who um, were outside, very few people masked, no physical distancing at all. Um, So even like outdoors was not a safe place when you have those unsafe, risky behaviors going on. Doug Ford today was prompted and, and asked a question if he planned on shutting down uh, indoor dining at restaurants. And his answer was more or less, well, he'd be open to it. He doesn't want to, but he'd be open to it as long as he's, he sees some evidence that says that indoor dining is causing spikes. But as you just said, 
we don't even have the framework or the infrastructure to collect that data. So the answer to his question will always be, well, we don't know. And that's the the double-edged sword right there is that we don't have the data because we're not collecting that data properly because we have so many things open. And I think you've stumbled on exactly what the issue is, that we have to do something, but what do we do? And I don't think there's a very, very clear answer to that or else we could basically jump on that right now. Can you explain to me how we ended up with strip clubs open? That's a very, very good question. Even like casinos as well. I'm not sure how that happened. Whether we had, you know, the businesses that were, you know, like talking to the government and then like kind of rallying for this to happen. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not sure how they thought this was a good idea. I know in some of the jurisdictions, I think like outside Ontario, we saw like karaoke bars open. And I think that's even more of a risky event or um, like place than an actual strip club is. But we saw these places open. And yeah, I'm not sure how they were even able to open in the first place. No idea. Schools did open and, uh, you know, a, a little delayed, but we're about two, three weeks into school now. Have we seen any data that schools are contributing to the spike in cases? Uh, because the, the timeline sort of aligned, but I suspect the spike in cases started a little earlier than, than school started. And also based on your Twitter account, some of the numbers you posted, I don't see schools as contributing heavily to this recent spike. Is that your understanding as well? How do you, how do you parse that analysis? That seems to be true. I mean, with that being said, I think as of like today, we've seen about 550 cases inside of Ontario schools. Now, with that being said, we have seen about 75 schools with multiple cases. Now, have those multiple cases been like transmitted inside of the school? Was someone made sick within the school when someone who was asymptomatic or who had minor symptoms when they like, transmitted that sickness to them? We don't really know. And that kind of goes back to that whole thing that like we were saying earlier, that we don't know what these cases are linked to. The issue is we have so many things open right now. It's very tough to link one location to an increase in the number of um, like cases. We have seen the like positivity rate, which is the number of individuals that are like tested who actually test like positive for COVID-19. It's not as high in that like zero through 10 and like 10 through 19 crowd, we're seeing that much, much higher in the in the older generations. So it seems that we are like testing the younger population a lot more. And we're not and we're not finding the same ratio of cases in that like younger population. I'm not sure whether that means schools are a safer place or not. That's still up in the air. And what do we know about kids' transmission? Are they more likely to transmit? Is 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 it is it because of their biology that they don't transmit as much, or is it something else? Because there's a general belief at this point that oh, it's okay, it's only a kid; they don't get affected, they don't transmit. Is that is that actually true? Do you want to maybe bust that myth if it is a myth? What I've heard, like anecdotally from a lot of like, family doctors, a lot of ID um, physicians, is that sometimes they have seen kids that they've like tested for like COVID, who had minor cold symptoms, a runny nose, a cough, whatever else it was, and they were tested, and they actually had COVID-19. What they would find is that a few days after that, their like parents came down with COVID-19. So I think what we're seeing is that we're seeing that this generation is spreading cases, but we don't necessarily attribute those cases to this generation because we don't find all the cases because some of them would be like asymptomatic. One thing that we definitely know is that this is a much more fatal like condition within the older population. Here in Ontario, I think we've only had one individual under the age of 20 uh, pass away from the COVID-19, whereas that's close to about 3,000 in the 80 plus population. So it's milder symptoms, but that 
like doesn't necessarily mean that they're not able to like pass this on to somebody else. Is there something new that we have learned about this virus, something significant over the last a couple of months that that we didn't know early on, like the, it affecting people who are older and with pre-existing conditions. I think we all we've all come to terms with that one. But is is there any new insight over the last maybe six weeks that that you have uncovered or your colleagues have uncovered that that may help us uh, fight this virus? Yeah. So actually, one thing which I think is interesting right now is that we're seeing around six hundred, seven hundred cases per day the same number of the cases we were seeing back in March and also April. And yet we're not seeing the same hospitalize, exact same hospitalization count that we saw back in March and April. Um, and one of the reasons for that may be the fact that like masks are actually lowering the viral load so that when somebody becomes infected, they're becoming infected with a smaller viral load. There have been some studies coming out that are showing that Maybe that's the case. And it's almost like vaccine in a way where if you expose someone to a smaller dose of something, they may show some mild symptoms, but they may not get the exact same symptoms that they would have had, you know, like back without a mask, without physical distancing. And I think it's interesting, too, because this all links back to, to New York City back in like early March, where we saw things get out of control there very, very fast. But it's a high like, density population there. And that would sort of lead the like, credence to this whole thing, looking at like mass and the fact that maybe they lower the viral load. It's not like definitive, but definitely interesting and something which certainly needs a lot more look at. I've always seen COVID as a Boolean thing. It's either you have it or you don't have it. But if it's the first time you've almost introduced a gradient here with this viral load concept, could you explain that viral load a little bit more? For sure. It's actually somewhat interesting, too, because with a lot of uh, like bacterial infections, it is a Boolean. It's either you have it, you don't have it. Um, and there's a like viral load, which will make you sick with a bacterial infection. If you're under that like bacterial load, you won't get sick. But with the COVID-19, maybe it's that when you get sick with a lower viral load, which means that you're exposed to less of the like virus, it's almost like a vaccine in that if you're exposed to a smaller amount of it, you build up antibodies, you're able to fight it off faster. So you still show some some symptoms, but it may not lead to hospitalization like it would have if you were exposed to a much higher uh, viral load like back in February or like March when we weren't physical distancing, when we also didn't have masks. If you assume the current status where things are open and uh, nothing is really closed and, and whatever, uh, you know, clampdowns that have happened have already happened and things are going to stay more or less the same. How do you anticipate the R-naught number changing if from now till end of the year, no other changes have been made to policy? It's not going to change too much. And that's the one thing about the R-naught is it'll probably stay around 1.1, 1.2. And once again, that doesn't sound like a lot, but if it was 1.1, that means in the span of like one month, that means that 700 um, the daily cases will become around 2,000 daily cases in just one month. And then... One month after that, the 2,000 cases will become 6,000 daily cases. So the R0 is usually stationary. The only time that it kind of changes is when you have like policy changes, when you have testing changes, when you have an increased backlog, when you've got some other things like that. That's when the R0 like changes, but it is showing us that if we had this steady R0 for the next month or so, we would be seeing around 2,000 cases per day at the end of October if the R0 stays the same and if we don't see any really big policy changes. And I guess going back to the grassroots here, the reason we're doing all this is because we want to save lives and we want to make sure our, our hospital capacity is able to handle whatever is thrown at them. Is it 
a realistic threat at this point that our hospitals might get overloaded? Have we learned something over the last six months that puts us in a better position that that's not going to happen? Or do you see that as a legitimate concern if we don't correct ourselves? So I think one thing we need to see is that hospitalizations here in Ontario peaked around the middle of April. And one thing that we can't forget is that when someone gets infected with COVID-19, it's about five days before they show symptoms. It's about another 11 days before they end up hospitalized. So there's a lag time between when someone gets infected and when someone appears in the actual hospital. And I think one thing that we're seeing now is we're seeing hospitalizations start to peak up. And we're also seeing cases still peak up as well. One thing that if you think back to March and April, when we saw our hospitalization get very, very high, that's when our cases started to like drop. And we were also testing more at that time too. So we started testing more. We started finding more cases, but yet the case numbers were actually dropping. And then hospitalizations shortly after also dropped as well. We're seeing now that our like tests seem to be around 35,000, 40,000 per day, but we're seeing those case numbers go up. And we're also seeing this jump into the 80 plus population. And that's been the most concerning thing for me over these last three or four days is that we're seeing individuals once again that are 60, 70, 80 or 80, they're getting sick with COVID-19. And that's the really, really big worry because that's the exact generation we don't want to see these cases go into. The other thing too, which is also interesting, is one of the biggest factors that was able to decrease the RT value back in March was when they announced that schools would shut down. It was not the school shutdown. It wasn't the restaurants, you know, shutting down. It wasn't this, you know, phase one or anything else like that. It was the announcement that schools were shutting down. And I think it was that announcement that scared a lot of people into realizing that there's something going on here. We need to take this seriously. And I hope that that's something which we can learn over these you know, next few days is that the numbers now are very, very dire. We need to start to take things seriously because the other thing coming up very soon is Thanksgiving. And that the time of year really, really worries me too. And as you said, I mean, the percentage of people who are under 40 who are testing positive now is actually decreasing. And the theory behind it, I assume, is that the people who are who are younger, who are getting infected are now passing it along to elder relatives and the elder population. And that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what we've seen in a whole bunch of um, American cities, a whole bunch of like urban centers too, that it starts off within that younger generation and then it like passes on to the other generations. And that's why too, I was talking about how the announcement that schools shutting down is one of the things that actually dropped cases. One of the things that has actually increased cases here in Ontario has been whenever we have had a civic holiday, the Canada Day, um, the August holiday, we see cases skyrocket at that time. You know, those sort of civic holidays seem to encourage gatherings those were summer gatherings. Those were mainly, I guess, like outdoor gatherings. My worry um, is that with next few months coming up, we've got holidays where it would be encouraging indoor gatherings and we have no clear messaging from the, the government. What should we do with these holidays coming up? What should we do? That's a very good question because I'm not too sure. But I think whatever we like decide, it needs to be like, communicated very, very like, clearly to the people. If I was in charge, one thing that I would do is I would get rid of social bubbles. You've got the individuals who you live with. That's your bubble. And I would say that if we had the indoor gatherings and outdoor gatherings brought down to 10 with physical distancing and with masking as well, that may be enough to bring this R value just under one so that we start to see a, a drop in cases once again. 
but it's going to be very, very tough to have these gatherings and then expect cases to actually drop. Is there any data around that we need to impose this measure for a period of time to see an impact? Because people get, people may be more receptive to a message if you tell them, we're going to impose these measures for the next six weeks, rather than we're going to impose these me- measures in perpetuity. Yeah. And actually, you know, that's one thing that I've really, really been fighting for for the past few months is that we have very, very clear metrics. And those clear metrics are used to both shut things down and also open things up. And I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing very, very mixed messaging. When we moved to stage three here in Ontario, the magical number seemed to be if there were 15 weekly cases per 100,000 people, that was enough that a like place was able to move to stage three. But now what we're seeing is we're seeing some places that are seeing four like times that count, and they're still in stage three. So it's very, very like confusing when, you know, that seemed to be the metric earlier on. And then they said that, in fact, the R was the metric. Well, the R value has been above one for the past two months, and yet we're not seeing action. So I think that's one of the things which is really, really throwing people off. As you were saying, it's that we don't have any clear metrics. And because we don't have any clear metrics, what are we following? What are we looking at? It becomes very, very difficult to say to people, look, here's what we're going to do. And here's when we're going to take this off when we don't have any numbers that actually guide those like decisions. And if we do, we have no idea what those numbers are. Yeah, we really cannot see a, a connection between a metric and a policy decision. And I think that's what's uh, confusing people. Very, very troubling. And, and that's, you know, one thing that I've kind of been looking at is, you know, what is it that is actually making these choices? And I'll be honest, I have no idea at all what's actually making those choices. So settle this one for me, man, because the definition of a second wave seems to be very elusive. Uh, I remember Dr. Fauci down south saying, uh, you know, in April, people were like, well, we're in the second wave now. And he's like, hold up, fellas, we're smack in the middle of the first one. There is no second wave. And, and I researched this a little bit. And apparently a second wave uh, doesn't have a clear definition, but what apparently Fauci said a while back was that as long as daily cases go in the low single digits and stay there consistently, and if they rise again after that, that's a second wave. Is there any professional alignment on what is defined as a second wave uh, across the world or across the country or across the province? No, I don't think there is. And I think one of the issues too is that if we're like comparing case counts now to case counts back in like a March and April, you can't really compare one to the next. We had testing criteria back in March that many, many people who should have been tested weren't actually tested. We had testing criteria back in March that did not like believe that the community transmission was actually happening. And I think because of that, it becomes very, very challenging to like compare cases now. 700 now is not 700 back in March. 700 now is probably around, you know, 3,000 back in March. I mean, that's what we were probably seeing 3,000 back in um, like March. I mean, it, it like they were, there were huge, huge numbers. When we thought there were 700, it was probably about four times, five like, times that value. Okay, that's uh, that's terrifying, uh, but we'll we'll move on to from that. So, so there's one one story that came out today was that uh, the, the backlog of of contact tracing that needs to happen was currently in hospitals being done mostly by nurses, and it's only now that we are hiring, you know, actual maybe lower skilled staff to actually execute those uh, contact tracing assignments. Is that true? Like, I, I know you work at a hospital. How does contact tracing there happen? Is it the nurse's responsibility to do that? Or do we have separate staff 
who, who are dedicated to that. Yeah, so it seems to be the like public health units, they're the ones that actually like trace these cases. There was an interesting uh, thread the other day from the uh, medical officer of health from Niagara region that was saying for every single case, um, it takes about one day for an actual contact tracer to be able to reach all of their contacts, reach that person. So it's the actual public health units that are um, responsible for that. Let's switch gears a little to uh, to sports. You know, pe- people are kind of optimistic or were optimistic that by Christmas time, when the season would reopen, uh, you know, maybe we'd have home games in Toronto. Obviously, even the NBA has deferred that to uh, January now. Adam Silver's latest comments were that, uh, you know, at the, at the earliest, it'll probably be January. And there are some rumors that it might even be March. What needs to be true, realistically, in Ontario for the Leafs or the Raptors to actually play a home game, maybe not all 19,800, but let's say kind of what the NFL did with like 25% capacity because 100% capacity might be unrealistic. But what needs to be true from a, let's fill this arena to 25% capacity? It's very, very challenging that the first thing is we have to get cases down. The case counts that we're seeing now are just not acceptable for us to be able to open anything up. Um, so as it stands right now in like Toronto, if you were to fill a stadium with 1,500 people, there's a 98% chance that at least one of them has COVID-19. It's almost, you know, for sure that someone within that stadium is going to have COVID-19. And the one thing that we can't forget either is that we have individuals in these like venues who are screaming, they're yelling, they're also drinking, they're like consuming food, they're not going to be masked the whole entire time either. Um, so obviously, that's not an acceptable risk for us to really, you know, be able to open up these stadiums, even at like you know, at like ten percent capacity. We would need these numbers, you know, like down like under one hundred cases per day would be the very very most we could see those cases. But I'll be honest, I think we almost need to be in a situation where we have an actual vaccination or we have this move to an outdoor venue where we have maybe 10% capacity for individuals to feel safe and actually want to go out to these venues. So on your Twitter account, man, there's a, there's some fantastic data. Definitely give uh, Ryan a follow. It's at I-M-G-R-U-N-D. Uh, he's definitely a, a person you want to follow on on Twitter. You have this uh, couple of charts there, which are like super interesting. And one of them is the chance of somebody in the class being positive based on region and class size. Yes. And I imagine this is a pretty popular graph for parents out there. That is the most popular one. In fact, it's one that the Electrono Star has actually picked up and we're actually doing a weekly feature on that in the star, not just by region, but by like postal code. So if you look up your first four digits or three digits of your like postal code and you find the area which you live in, you can see your risk down to the actual postal code. And that is for sure a huge, huge hit, um, something which a lot of people want to see because you can make choices that way. I think in the last week, I think it was Little Portugal had like a numbers that were extremely high. It was almost like a 50% chance of um encountering someone with COVID in a group of uh, like 50, and yet it had never been that high in that neighborhood before. And I think really what this comes down to is that this is something which is going to be changing all the time. It's going to hit various neighborhoods at uh, various times and arming people with this data will allow them to be able to make safe like choices. And I think that's really, really key like at this time to follow these numbers and look to yourself and say, what is an acceptable risk for yourself? 
And the other one that you also published is, you know, again, based on region, if you go outside and you are in contact with X amount of people, you have a 50% chance of meeting somebody with COVID. For sure. Yeah. And that one's huge. And I think that's, you know, something as well that we were seeing these values in uh, Windsor. Um, they were like one in like 15 when things got really, really bad there. And, you know, and it's, a, the good way to see, you know, if the numbers are so low, what's an acceptable risk to you? Because I think what you need to see from that chart is that's a chance of encountering someone with COVID-19. And a lot of people say, well, what's an encounter? Well, what's nice about that is that you can define the encounter yourself. If that encounter is distant, if it's masked, if it's short, if it's like outside, you don't stand that same risk of actually transmitting COVID-19 to somebody else versus if it's not distance, it's unmasked, it's indoors, it's for a long period of time. Yeah. And I love how you put it. You can make choices that way. And I think that's one of the problems with this with this pandemic is that we have so much information and so much data, but we don't know how to consume it. We don't know how it should impact our behavior at all, besides what Ford kind of says in his press conference and whatever tweet comes out from Ministry of Health. We aren't really given enough tools to actually make conscious decisions based on our objective thinking. And you just pointed out two of those tools right here in the last five minutes. Are there some other areas that you're working on or other people should be working on where these choices are made easy for the general public? Yeah, so I think one thing that, you know, we should be watching is the numbers in the actual age groups. I think that's really, really key to be watching as well, because I think that if we start to see this like creep up into the older age group, a case count of 600 per day is much, much worse if you see that in the, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old population versus the the 20, 30, 40 year old population. So I think that's something which we need to be watching as well, because once we see these like, creep up into the older population, we're going to see hospitalizations, we're going to see ICU utilization, and that's when we will definitely 100% see further rollbacks, uh, because that's the one thing that we want to avoid. And that's, a, and that's universal. Once we see hospitalizations get to a certain number, we need to make sure that we're able to actually treat people. That's when we're going to lock down further no matter what. So that's for sure something which I would follow. I get this feeling that we really haven't learned too much from March, April. It seems like we're repeating a lot of the same mistakes like right now. We are. And I mean, like we're seeing long-term care facilities. They're getting hit hard once again. I thought we had that like, you know, iron wall, iron ring, whatever it was around these long-term care facilities. And it seems that we didn't because we're seeing the exact same thing now as we saw back in March and April. So yeah, you're right. I mean, if there's one like, population that we need to like, protect, it's the elderly vulnerable population. And it seems that, that even after all that we went through, we're not doing a very good job of that either. Does the government of Ontario release data? I, I know I, I follow a couple of websites and uh, I don't see data being released, which is which is uh, related to, you know, uh, race, uh, demographic information. Even age is sometimes hard to find. It's, it's certainly not accessible enough where I can just download it and run pivot tables myself or do some other analysis myself. I, is that a conscious choice by the government not to release that data or is do they just not have it? Because I imagine they obviously have it. I mean, why would you not just make that sort of open source? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think there's some like public health units that do a very, very good job of releasing that information. I know like Toronto Public Health is really, really uh, like upfront 
with that information. But there's some other public health units that release next to nothing. We're sort of walking the fine line that some of the public health units say, we don't want to release that information. We don't want to segregate. We don't want to isolate a like group. So we don't want that information out there. But I think that the Toronto Public Health has done a really, really good job of walking that fine line and making sure that the information is out there if it can help like individuals out. And I think the one thing which um, the information did actually do um, is that knowing that it was affecting certain neighborhoods more than other neighborhoods, some of the school boards were able to actually target funding and, and also target smaller class sizes to some of those troubling neighborhoods. And I think what's good is that if we know where those issues are, and if we target those, and if the aim is to help those neighborhoods out, it's a very, very positive thing to have that information. And I want to go back to your Twitter account a little bit. And, and you mentioned a couple of days ago uh, about cohort and class rotations and how important they are. Could yeah. you explain that concept a little bit more? Yeah. So I think one thing which is happening is that in some schools, we're actually seeing students move from one class to the next. Um, in some schools, it's every other day. In some schools, it's every other week. But we're seeing some schools that are actually starting to switch like midweek. Um, and we're seeing them, you know, a like class be with a brand new teacher and that whole class gets mixed up as well. Um, so we've almost kind of lost that idea of what a like cohort actually is. And I think that's one of the more troubling things that any like changes that we make in terms of when we have like classes switch from one room to the next, from one teacher to the next, from one day to the next, they need to be made after a long period away from the school, maybe after a long weekend versus making some of these changes midweek. When if one student becomes ill and they're on a lunch with like two separate groups of students, they're on a school bus with two separate groups of students, you know, we're sending a lot of students home with just one infected person. And if we have them, and if we have those switches made after a long weekend, we can ensure that we keep those people in school as long as we possibly can. And uh, and you also in in your models you, you're also predicting about 250 deaths over the next uh, 30 days in Ontario. You know, 35 deaths of over 90s, 82 uh, deaths of people in their 80s, and then you're also predicting 12 deaths of people in their 40s, and so on and so forth. Like basically, what I'm seeing there is that what like age groups are actually being infected with COVID-19, and then I'm also following their like case fatality rate, which is basically over time. Whenever we found, let's say, 100 cases, if 31 of those cases have ended up in like deaths, like it has in the 80 plus population, then I would say, well, there's 100 cases that's going to lead to 31 like deaths. And if you follow that over the span of one month, you get a very, very good, you know, sign of how many like deaths we'll actually see. Um, and usually about like double that seems to translate into like you know, hospitalizations as well. Now, one thing to kind of keep in mind is that like deaths are a lagging indicator. It's something which if we change the numbers right now, if we went into a full lockdown now, some of these deaths would still occur like over these next two, three, four weeks, because these individuals that will ultimately die from COVID-19, they already have COVID-19. It's one of those things that even if we make changes now, we're going to see those deaths inevitably happen no matter what. And I think that the 250 deaths, I think, is going to be a fairly accurate total for the month of October. Do you factor in treatments that have been uh, improving over the last few months? No. And you know what? So that's the one thing which I've been looking at um, is, you know, how has this actually changed over time? Um, and the, the case fatality rate has been somewhat similar over time. It's changed a little bit, but not like drastically enough um, that, you know, I would really, really change those numbers. 
Okay, man, let's let, let's end it. I know you're a big Raptors fan. Yeah. And uh and let let's talk some basketball uh, here to to close this off. What did you make of the Celtics series? Uh, how did you feel after it? Why do you think the Raptors came up short there? Yeah, it was very very disappointing. I think one thing which I saw is just not enough like ball movement. They did not involve enough players in every single play. Um you know, they seem to use that whole like pick and roll, pick and pop. There were, you know, like two people, three people involved in every play. And if you saw Boston's ball movement, it was exceptional. And I think that was one of the reasons why we like came up short. I think after I saw the first game, I knew it would be a very, very long series. And if we won, we had to really, really change things around. What are you feeling about uh, the Raptors next season? Are you offering Fred Van Vliet a contract? <laughs> yeah, you know what? He is fantastic. He plays with a lot of like heart. He's like definitely someone who I'd want on our team, who I'd want to stick around with the Raptors 100%. I think he's an uh, exceptional player. Would you give Norm a contract? Oh, I would too. Yes. Well, well, well hang on. It's not just give Norm a contract. You got to pick and choose now. When I mean, You can't pay Fred, OG, and Norm. There's not that much money to go around. But if you had to pick like two of the three, who are your two? That's tough. I like OG and I like Fred. And that's not to say I don't like Powell, but, um, you know, of the three, I'd say he's like the weakest link of the three, but by no means is he a weak link. A little Pascal Siakam comment from you. Uh, obviously, he struggled in the Boston series. And as soon as he struggled, you know, he got he got a lot of flack on Twitter as well on, you know, for, for his underperforming uh, series. Do you think he has in it uh, to bounce back? Or uh, do, do you think he's uh, he's more of a DeMar DeRozan type uh, player? And you know what? And that's exactly what I was going to say too, that that it's so funny that I think every like you know, five to seven years, we have this exact same conversation, whether it's about <laughs> Riakam, whether it's about like DeRozan, whether it's about Bosch, um, whether it's about whoever, it's that exact same, you know, the commentary that these individuals don't seem to step up in a like playoff series and it becomes very, very challenging. I think for some of these players to kind of modify the way that they play, I think like, um, you know, Siakam, he used that exact same spin move all the time. And it's not a bad thing if he's going with that spin move in game one and game two, but once he's got the ball, he gets trapped and it's in game three, they know exactly what he's going to fall back on. And these other teams can like pick apart bad habits of players and that's where experience comes into play and it was something we were lacking in some of our talent yeah and scouting reports definitely catch up uh, catch up to you and then you got to adapt right and, and it's siakam's time to respond it's, it's not about what happens to you it's how you respond to things so now i guess next season we'll see how he'll actually respond to nba defenses zoning up on him 100 because he can expect that now and hopefully he makes some modifications in the next like you know two or three months we'll see what happens Ryan, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, listener, definitely check out at Imgrund, at I-M-G-R-U-N-D. Uh, Ryan is a must-follow. Uh, he's a statistician, a biostatistician. It, it's a great Twitter account with lots of tools, lots of good information out there. Give him a follow. Ryan, thank you again for joining us. And thank you so much for having me. And go Raptors. Go Raptors.